But I am in a position to say that the question of environment in connection to political and social issues is constantly being reconfigured. It is in a permanent state of openness that borders are porous and that the book has been largely affected by digital media, as digital media are still to overcome the shadow of printed culture. So in the first part of this paper, I will go through themes and tendencies in the literature of the crisis. We'll examine um, within the context of the cultural economy of the book. So in the second part, I will discuss blog postings on similar themes and the cultural economy that produced them. Fiction revolving around financial affairs, austerity measures, and the social consequences has largely attracted the attention of the Greek critical establishment with the Monica literature of the crisis now circulating widely. More than 15 novels have emerged since 2010, covering subjects that range from homelessness and unemployment, the demise of the middle class, and the search for a new national pride and identity. Despite individual examples of texts having been discussed in a scholarly fashion, the literature of the crisis is yet to be examined in theoretically grounded bodies of work. Most novels, close construction amounts to proposing a deterministic pattern of cause and effect. In Petrus Marcus's three detective novel styles, the Crisis Trilogy, published between 2010 and 2012, the assassins are members of the public who punish those in power for actions that brought about the Greek plight. Here I have a, a selection of works, and it's just the ones I'm including in this presentation. There, there are many more. So those who were responsible were the bankers, the tax dodgers, and those belonging to the so-called political presentation. And you heard about these novels in yesterday's presentations as well. All the authors also account for the crisis as the result of the affluence and political corruption of previous decades. Such as the novel, uh, The Snake Sheds Skin by Cosas Acribos. Agrivos focuses on the social pathologies of the crisis and the search for a novel national identity, what it means to be Greek in times of crisis and maybe in spite of it. In City and Cyprus, Pakosadinos Zamniotis, it is a society which has been entangled in a vicious circle of corruption and lack of humanity, which eventually backfired. These steps contribute to the formation of public opinions, they conceptualize politics, economics, and society, and promote solution strategies. In Agrivos' novel, The Snake Shed its Skin, the continuous delving into the archive of national history offers, if not a way out, then a new sense of national pride. In Reagan Alex's recent novel, Ultimate Humiliation, you heard about it yesterday, a solution is found in a humanist stance towards the other capital O. In her novel, which largely focuses on the political rift between extreme left and extreme right, the two elderly female protagonists support each other despite their differences and give shelter to an Egyptian woman and her small child who escape the horrors of the Amitaleza refugee camp. They also give shelter to a homeless man after they experience homelessness themselves for a short period. While these novels converse with a vast array of ideological modalities, I get the impression that in many of them there is an insistent and often disproportionate accumulation of motifs that have featured in mainstream media coverage of the crisis. 
suicides, homelessness, soup kitchens, loans, reductions in wages and pensions, closure of shops, demonstrations and political rallies, plus the presence of migrants in urban centers. These have become symbols in a mythology of the Greek recession, partly because they make constant news items and newspaper headlines. In the beginning of Marcus's second novel of the crisis trilogy entitled Termination, Pereosi, four elderly women who have been suffering under reduced pensions take their own lives, while later a young unemployed couple slash their wrists inside the Parthenon in a symbolically loaded episode. Galanaki focuses on the anti-austerity rallies of February 2012 in Athens, which resulted in the destruction of historical buildings in the capital. Samiotis' city in silence, the taxi driver Agiris Trikorfos witnesses families of migrants scavenging dustbins for junk metal, and previously well-respected Greek families eating in soup kitchens. Until then, he believed that people who came to the point of depending on a free meal to survive were the half-lunatics, the alcoholics, the drug addicts, the homeless, the more or less marginalized. It was so, there were people like that, but with them also came family men like him, men and women in the prime. Whole families were patiently waiting for a plate of food as if it were the end of the world. Their attempt to render the atmosphere of recession as accurately as possible, novels often overemphasize this phenomenon. Consequently, they often reproduce populist treatments of these themes in television news items which aim at disquieting the reader. Moreover, in their intention to give us full an account of the crisis across the country, they end up creating a national theme out of it. They construct an abstract country suffering rather than individual suffering, and often without obviously meaning to, they end up being didactic, pointing the finger for giving morality lessons and prescribing politics in a general climate of pessimism and doom. During these five years, there has been a surge in short fiction in Greece. Short fiction has been hailed by a number of critics and commentators as a more effective narrative form to target Greek social phenomena. The best-selling collection of short stories, Something Will Happen, you'll see by Christos Economou, traces shifts of identity and the rebalancing of human relations in deprived working class areas of Piraeus. Economy employs effective strategies and short stories that monitor the effects of the crisis on those social groups which are most vulnerable. By contrast, a few further authors contextualize the social aspect within the wider outlook of forming and deforming political subjectivities. The most successful example in this category is Janis Tsipras' novella Victoria Does Not Exist, which focuses on the rise of xenophobia in certain parts of the Greek capital. Silvers' novella traces the formation of political stances. A resident of Victoria Square blames his demise on the influx of migrants. He communicates his hateful opinions to someone he meets on the train. His collector, however, just sits there and listens and does not react even when he suggests that migrants should be exterminated with poison food left in dustbins. Silvers' text is devoid of emotional charge. Depends on the power of dialectics, debating to seemingly dissimilar position, 
positions would eventually converge that of the fascist and that of the different bystander. Because Rezopoulos wrote a story book Fagost Storm of Flashlight Between the Teeth is equally disengaged on an emotional level. The dynamic aspect is also present here. A bourgeois flaneur, inquisitive, but somehow trapped in the confines of his class privileges, meets a homeless man. Through their interaction, the narrator becomes aware of the precarity of his own position. Shoplos's book, which deems itself a chronicle for Athens, is in hybrid form, combining text with photographs. This idiosyncratic flannery in the crisis-stricken capital is also the subject of Yoros Kutsukos' novella Aquarium. A man walks the streets of Athens in search of sexual partners, whom he lures by pretending to have dropped his wallet at their feet. While Kutsukos does not discuss the crisis head-on, his narrator's encounters are tainted by it from the beginning. In a climate where everyone is cash-strapped, some women just take the wallet, while others run after the man to give it back. The emphasis put on the communicative pockets that ensue from this petty trick, on what it means to look for human contact and love in a climate of general decline. Unlike novels, short stories intend to give us a limited perspective on social phenomena. They present snippets of the problem rather than a full and therefore authoritative narrative of the problem. In my view, blogs, uh, along with Facebook and Twitter, which are micro-blogging platforms, are effective narrative media in these circumstances precisely because of the fragmentary nature. Blogging and engaging in social media have been rife in the past decade in Greece. During the last five or six years, many bloggers have turned into active commentators on the country's state. And here you can see the examples. I'm not going to go through the whole list. What do blogs do? They offer brief and punchy texts which record personal views and experiences, inviting users to read, comment, and share. Style is conversational. According to Jolie Dean, blogs offer a form of expression in between orality and literacy. According to Walter Wong, they're a secondary orality. Robot blogging relies heavily on practices of life writing, of positioning the self in the center as a preceptor, an observer, often also as the affected or even suffering body. Blog posts are filtered through the subjectivity of the blogger, the city journalist. They aim at veracity, but this is not conveyed in an informative manner. They are shorter than the shortest of short stories, generically closer to flash fiction, perhaps. They offer snapshots rather than time exposures, often employing effect. They point out our attention to a punctum, a rupture, a wound, rather than the studio of the wider perspective, which attempts to rationalize and explain. This can largely be put down to a hybrid narrative form, which anarchically blends life writing, original fiction, and political commentary, alongside a strong visual component in the form of images and videos. Not all bloggers do that, but a lot of them do. Really, it's rather small, but I wanted to have this uh, on one screen. 
But numerous routes and rights are opposed title on the heel of strategy from July, uh, 20 July 2013. The city, which has been appreciated and loved, been uh, least appreciated and loved even less, has many corners of unexpected beauty. Of course, this is often not the type of prettiness one finds in a museum-like neighborhood or the only scene of a postcard. This is the beauty created by people gathered together. The other day, I was on the hill of Stefik with a group of friends in an open-air uzo bar I had not been to in 70 years. Indeed, our presence there probably raised the average age. I was impressed by the healthy mood these young people gave off in their group of friends. And I'm not at all certain it is the same mood we gave off seven, as yes, 17 years before. While waiting for my friends, I arrived first, I noticed that the place was full. I wondered whether the spectacle agreed with the crisis, with being skinned, with being despondent. We have started thinking like devil's advocates, trained by the media in passing ourselves and in giving ourselves morality lessons about our lives. We have internalized the guilt which should have been felt by those who used to get rich at the time of the so-called party and who are now doing fine. With my friends, we discussed the crowds frequenting the open-air Uzoba. Then we realized that those who cannot afford to go on holiday are sent the hill of Strefi and other hills in search of coolness, since the vacation now costs an arm and a leg. Moreover, looking around, we primarily witnessed high spirits, a joyful mood, and cheaper beer rather than evidence of culinary excesses. The most perceptive among us noted that we were returning to the Greece of the 1970s in this domain also. The next day, my mind returned to the 20 year olds of Sosterfi who had a good time without spending much money. Most of them must have been students, although the studies must be giving them the opportunity to read, but also to socialize and become political, to make mistakes, to procrastinate, to do some soul searching, to lose the plot, to change their mind and their worldview quite often. Yes, with money from the state. Yes, too little, too late. They call them the lost generation, but the impression they gave me with their healthy attitude and their lack of modern requinging was that they may be those who will stop the fascist future of newspeak, of barbarism and of flexible slavery, if only they don't use their high spirits. The full version of this text is not much longer than what I quoted here. It blends first-hand experience with social commentary in a casual fashion that is somehow reminiscent of the prose author Jorgos Joanna. Social challenges a dominant, theme, a dominant theme brought forward by populist newspapers in Greece and abroad, that people should not go out and have fun if they are in debt. He hails living together and being comfortable with less, but his observations are based on perception on being part of the collective structures he describes. The scene culminates in the repetition of the word epexia, which I have translated as healthy attitude, and I don't like it very much, but so this epixia of the yeah, younger generation has a feeling of coolness found on the hill. The doom of gloom of the crisis is left to the city centre of Athens, and the hill of Stereo is pronounced a kind of a teratopia. In a different example, the blogger Eros writes on 11 August 2015. The August is magical street lights, churches, cups, lottery ticket stands, ATMs, old posters, bins, 
everything in its place or on duty. Yet things are either creative, ain't they? This magical sickness feeds you to the city magic. Thursday, 3 or 4 in the morning, in the street where I live, a bloke on a motorbike hit the dog. Relatively large in size, black, with the kind of eyes my friends say would look good on me, a little silly bored, but cool at the same time. A rather likable dog, that is. I became aware of it when I heard, mind the dog, you wankers, it was the man from downstairs. Basically, someone from the flat downstairs. I never found out how many members there were to his family. With a couple of them, however, we exchanged the old, how are you doing, mate? They left the day before yesterday. Pity. I want migrants as neighbors. To cut the long story short, about four of us came down from one of the neighboring buildings, plus two, uh, two more from the bakery at the corner, and the baker. Typical baker, a rather likable baker, that is. He offered his car so the dog would be taken to the vet on duty. We all shipped in cash. I think the vet asked for 70. One gave 10, another 7, I gave 8, the man downstairs gave 20. The man living among those in the flat downstairs. When the car left, we decided to leave too. And me. The dog has found a home and is doing better, I thought. While we were leaving, someone from the bakery said, I'm skinned, fuck the prosperity measures. Secrets we want. I didn't miss the opportunity to quit. It's not secrets which are my wanker, it's his wanking position of power. Happy with my political finale, I went upstairs and got on the stage Francis's crack pumps. P.S. Where the heck can someone find you? But if my eros focuses on fact, there is little analysis beyond the narrator's immediate responses. It should have caused me read against the backdrop of Cyprus's government having sold out after the summer referendum. Yet this is not stated explicitly. Instead, there is an old story about a dog, blended with scanty remarks about the city and plenty of sarcasm. What the two texts, Art of Strausser and Art of Hero, have in common is that they focus on group structures. The customers in Anusobar united in their good spirits, or the residents of one street. This is not what television news would normally show. In this sense, blogs construct a literary economy of information on the crisis that goes against mainstream media. These examples confirm Ruth Page's claim that literariness is a major compound in social media posts. While they're not necessarily presented as works of fiction, many of the day-to-day -day accounts of life experience are selective, artistic, reflective, playful, emotive, and sometimes as unreliable as the text more centrally positioned in its digital narratology. End of quote. In other words, blogs offer what I call a diffusion of literariness, transferring literary qualities into types of writing that are not directly associated with literature at all. What accounts for their success is that they do not depend on plot and lifelike characters. Rather, they depend on observation, style, and the ability to prophecy to focus on the meaningful detail. Blogs offer countercultural narratives that challenge the published book and the industry behind. They achieve this in two ways. First, they counter the printed book in modes of cultural economy, notably in the way they are accessed and disseminated, reproduced and discussed. Kaplan 
campaign defines social media as a group of internet-based applications are built on the ideological and technological foundations of Web 2, and that allow the creation and exchange of user-generated content. Unlike Web 1, which allows specified authors to add content to an internet platform, the data architecture of Web 2 is interactive. It enables the user to perform a repertoire of participatory actions, to comment, like, share, follow, retweet. In this way, the author-reader divide with the stop-down social globe and hierarchical connotations collapses and yields to a bottom-up approach. This has resulted in a reconfiguration of writing as a collaborative event, to the author turning into reader, to the reader turning into author. Also, blogs feature the cultural practice of storing information for the conglomerate of post-compiled archives that narrativize experiences and a collective event. There are functions in the structure of social media that allow historicity to be performed as a result of the media itself. The storage capacity of social media can create archives of information that are out of reach in previous information cultures. In times of crisis, when resorting to an archive of histories, narratives, and memories becomes crucial, these functions of social media become more popular than ever. Second, blogs do not depend on literary market rules of approval. A blogger does not need to submit a manuscript to a publishing house to reach an audience. Writing means simply using a blogging service like WordPress.com. As Dean points out, everyone is producer and consumer. Blogs collapse the notion of an audience. A blog's success is measured by the number of its subscribers and the number of hits um, a post attracts. At the beginning of February 2016, the blog Dovitio counted almost 12,000 subscribers. The blogger Sauza recently claimed on Facebook that his most successful post has more than 20,000 hits. These numbers are not dismissible, especially if one compares them to the print run of a book in the Greek market, which rarely exceeds 2,000 copies. The exception of Microsoft Konomo, most books on the crisis did not go beyond the first edition. The blogger Eros, who often uploads rap videos and successfully links his blog with Facebook and Twitter pages, recently reported a staggering 305,000 uh, um, 5, views uh, on 24 February 2016 in his blog statistics. However, when it comes to their status in the cultural economy, blogs are underprivileged. For one thing, they are hardly represented in mainstream media. They don't get reviewed in the press, they are not often the subject of scholarly presentations, academic talks and essays. They exist on the margin of literary culture. While it is possible to find out the names of bloggers, most of them do not write under their real name. Astro Boris, uh, who has been an active blogger in the last seven or eight years, is that right? Twelve. Twelve. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Recently pointed out to me. Thirteen. Okay. We're all that most, most people are discussing here in this paper. So he pointed out to me something which I found quite fascinating, that blogging means to perform the self as an author rather than endow your writing with an author's status. While the body of printed literary work produced on the crisis takes on an institutional role in its representation, precisely through the well-formed notions of aesthetics, plot, and fiction, 
The fragmentary form of blog postings claims an understanding of the crisis based on a hybrid mixture of fact and fiction, an anarchic conglomeration of dissident themes, elliptical views, and fragmented optics. In this sense, blogs and their readers form a sort of underground literary market with its own authors, readers, and bestsellers, which is ignored by the cultural economy of the printed book. This, of course, does not mean that blogs and social media in general are not embedded in market structures, too. New media theorists have pointed out that social media operate in a culture of communicative capitalism. In network culture, politics for the information age, Tiziana Veranova examines how the internet can encourage individuals to offer free labor to corporate conglomerates. Dean points out the decline of symbolic efficiency in cyberspace, concluding that blogs are projections of virtual narrative subjects that truly participate in capitalist consumption and disposal of circuits. Also, great bloggers are far from being immune to printed culture. A good number of them have recently published selections of their texts in book form, while some have diminished their digital presence in favor of a more solid career in printed literature. And yet, I believe that when discussing literature of the crisis, we should not disregard the narratives produced on digital platforms, simply because the latter showcase the social usefulness of narrative, as argued by David Herman. Rather than focusing on general, abstract situations or trends, stories are accounts of what happened to particular people and of what it was like for them to experience what happened in particular circumstances and with specific consequences. Narrative, in other words, is a basic human strategy for coming to terms with time, process, and change. Digital media narratives deserve to be put on the map of literary practices. To understand them, however, means to understand cultural economy that created them and how they can't counter or challenge the symbolic capital of 